0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot
0: Hey there, how you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. I hope you are well, wherever you are. I hope you're enjoying your summer. And I have for you today an excellent episode. My guest is Reginald Dwayne Betts. His new poetry collection is called Felon, and it is available from W.W. Norton & Company. I had an excellent conversation with him. That is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is made possible by William Morrow Books, publisher of Count the Ways, the new novel from New York Times bestselling author Joyce Maynard. Count the Ways tells a mesmerizing story of a family. From the hopeful early days of young marriage to parenthood, divorce, and the costly aftermath. Anne Hood calls Count the Ways, quote, rich and complex, brilliant and heartbreaking. And Carolyn Levitt calls it, quote, exactly the book we all need now. Count the Ways deals with new love, broken marriages, family tragedy, parent-child estrangement, and gender transition. Count the Ways by Joyce Maynard, available now from William Morrow Books. So Reginald Dwayne Betts is the guest. He is a poet essayist, memoirist, and national spokesperson for the Campaign for Youth Justice. He writes and lectures widely about the impact of mass incarceration on American society. He's authored three previous books, including two collections of poetry, one of which is called Bastards of the Reagan Era, and the other of which is called "Shaheed Reads His Own Poem. He is also the author of a memoir entitled a question of freedom. Reginald Dwayne Betts is a graduate of Yale law school, and he has worked for years as an advocate, as a a voice for those caught up in the criminal justice system as a public defender, an incredible life story and an incredible artist. And I thought uh, that I would have him read from his new collection felon before we get started with the conversation. So This is a poem entitled November 5th, 1980. This is Reginald Dwayne Betts.
1: November 5th, 1980. I have called in my wasted youth the concrete slabs of prison home. Awakened to guards keeping tabs on my breath, bartered with every kind of madness, the state's mandatory minimums and my own callous. I've never called the man father and while asleep twice wrecked cars drank whiskey straight nothing suffices I fell in love with sons I wouldn't give my name once swam at midnight in the Atlantic's violence under the water rattling broke the silence I cussed men with fists like hand bones and got beaten to dust buried memories in my gut that would fill a book I've carried pistols, but have never held a bullet. There is frightful little left for me to hold in fear. Definitely not the debt that threatens to hollow me. I have a bold transparency confessed to so-and-so. But what if it matters? And this life so much is trouble. And a few things that didn't, never failed to baffle
0: Okay, that is Reginald Dwayne Betts reading a poem entitled November 5th, 1980 from his new collection, Felon, available now from W.W. Norton & Company. Today's episode is also made possible by Disorder Press and Exchange for Change, publishers of a new anthology entitled Hear Us, writing from the inside during the time of covid This is a unique anthology of poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and artwork from incarcerated writers, their family members, and Department of Corrections staff. The work in this book describes how the pandemic and George Floyd's murder have impacted their lives. A woman from Alaska fears that she has become merely a number and will be lost in a stack of paperwork. On death row in San Quentin, an inmate memorializes his fellow friends who have died as a result of COVID-19. A woman reading COVID-19 obituaries doubts that anyone will care that her brother died of the very same virus while he was incarcerated in Florida. In vivid detail, Hear Us shows how inequity and injustice are played out in the era of mass incarceration. With a foreword by award-winning author Edwidge Dantica, This exceptional cross-section of more than 50 writers elevates the voices of those who are too often silenced behind the barbed wire. Available now from Disorder Press and exchange for change at disorderpress.com. Once again, the anthology is called Hear Us, writing from the inside during the time of COVID, available at disorderpress.com. So, having said all of that, it is time now for the main event, my conversation with Reginald Dwayne Betts, author of the new poetry collection, Felon, available now from W.W. Norton. Such a pleasure to meet him and to have the opportunity to spend some time talking with him about his life and work, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Reginald Dwayne Betts.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. You know, it's interesting because um, a lot of books get published every year. And and I think it's hard to sort of wade through all of those words and kind of find a, a sort of place and a sort of location. And it's even harder when you're trying to make art and you also want to say something that matters. And, you know, I think about this moment right now and, and I think about some of the things I tried to say in the book and it feels uh, sort of eminently necessary in ways that I always felt like it felt before, but I think in ways that are um, even more apparent just because of everything that's going on uh, in this country.
0: Yeah, and I think for listeners who are new to you and your work, it might be helpful to get like a brief, like biographical overview um, of how you, you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I hate biographies, right? Like, no, it's interesting, right, because how do you, you know and I struggle with this a lot. I mean, I don't struggle with it. I've I've, I've figured out a thousand ways to answer the question, but I find that when somebody asks me my bio, I want to get a few pieces of information out. You know, I want to say that I'm a lawyer and, and then when I'm feeling arrogant about it or when I'm feeling like I really need to say, I'm not just a lawyer, but I I went to Yale law school. um, I find that when I, when I do that, you know, that's one version of it. But when I When I do it, it's because I'm always thinking about the other version of the story, which is that when I was 16, I carjacked somebody. You know, I'm I'm not that invested in where you got your education as necessarily defining who you are, even suggesting how intelligent you are. But for me, thinking about where I got my education, whether it's the University of Maryland, where I got my undergraduate degree, or Warren Wilson College, where I got my MFA, or, you know, the Prince George's George's, um, Community College, where I first started my sort of post secondary education like i think about those places as not just being institutions that i'm an alum of or places that i've like went through and walked the horse but i think of it as a a, a sort of part of a narrative that says that i am more than you know the 16 year old kid that carjacked somebody pled guilty spent uh eight and a half years in prison and became a poet in prison and it's interesting because everything i just said says nothing about poetry and you know my origin stories of poetry is deeply wedded to my narrative of being a, a prisoner, which is just to say I was in solitary confinement and somebody slipped me a book. It was Dudley Randall's The Black Poets. And I'm reading Lucille Clifton and Sonia Sanchez and Robert Hayden. And, and and most importantly, in some ways, Etheridge Knight, because Etheridge Knight was the cat who had been locked up and I'm reading his work and I realized that you could write about this world I was in. So if I was introducing somebody to my work, I would say I, I live in these two poles, you know, between the sort of Yale educated lawyer And and the prison educated poet
0: It's an incredible story
1: Yeah I appreciate that Sometimes it's incredible (laughs) Sometimes it's just a burden You know what I mean (laughs) Like sometimes it's just like You know uh, You know One of the things is like a, A lot of what we talk about publicly Around incarceration, around prison Around justice, around violence and crime For a lot of people who are Who are able to engage in those conversations It feels rhetorical You know, it feels like this is a thing that has been studied. This is a thing that has been learned. This is a thing that's been theorized about. And it feels like most of the people having the conversation publicly um, have that kind of distance engagement with it. Um, But when I say sometimes it's a burden, it's because every one of these questions cut to the quick. You know, it's never just uh, one thing. And I think that comes up in my writing. And maybe the way I deal with it, actually, is to be able to write because the writing forces you to to, at least it forces me to like grapple with the complexities in a way in which I never truly have a clean answer for any of it.
0: Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. in your book and it it says, uh, name a song that tells a man what to expect after prison. Um, that struck me. And I think that because you've had such, um, at least within the confines of, uh, traditional ideas of success, like going on to Yale, uh, getting a law degree, you know, doing these things that I think, uh, our culture has sort of deemed to be, Traditionally successful in the aftermath of spending nine years in prison, um, people might be looking to you to tell them <laughs> what to do uh, in the aftermath of incarceration. Like, is that part of what you're speaking about when you speak about the burden?
1: Um, no, I mean, you know, the truth is that people who've been in prison sort of understand that it's just not that clean. And in fact, people who know people who've been in prison understand that it's just not clean. I mean, honestly, you know, one of the most telling moments in my life, man. I remember I, I've been appointed to the by President Obama. Now, the start of that story is always like, what the fuck is you talking about? You know, like if you start a story that says I was p- appointed by President Obama, like you already like sort of changed the narrative location of what follows. You know, it's not the story that most people could tell already. Right. So it's already an absurdity in me starting a story that way. But um, I had been appointed. As a practitioner member of this thing called the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. And it was essentially like a government agency that worked with all of the other agencies to think about and contemplate how they prevented juvenile delinquency and how they addressed it in the various agencies. And so I got a chance to go to these quarterly meetings and really hear about how the different agencies were working within the you know, orbit of their traditional work to deal with these issues, whether it was grant making. Whether it was the research they were doing, whether it was actual programs they were implementing, and it was fascinating work, and I learned a lot, but I didn't always get a chance to go to the meetings. And I remember, if you didn't go, you could just call in, right? And so one day I'm calling in because I was in Massachusetts, and um and I was had been studying for the for the LSAT and applying to law schools, and I had just got in. And so the attorney general chairs these meetings. And attorney general isn't always there. Sometimes the assistant attorney general chairs the meetings. But um it was, you know, um attorney general Holder was chairing this particular meeting, black dude, you know, and I met him before and I so I knew him a little bit but didn't know him at all. just been in a room with him. And then it was um Bob Listenby was the director of O J J D P, another black guy, and these are two black men in there like you know 50s 60s but established guys who were like at the height of their profession in a lot of ways and so when when, when um director Listonby introduced me he said i want to introduce our other practitioner member uh mr Reginald Dwayne best and congratulations i hear you just got into yale law school and, Ho- and holden holden says uh i ain't getting to yale law school and Liston B is like, I ain't getting into Yale Law School either. Now, you got to understand, I'm, I'm listening to this conversation, and like, these are two dudes that I admire, you know, and and that, and that if, if ever it was an occasion to have somebody proud of the work that I was doing, you know, those two would be in terms of the legal profession amongst the number. And so, you know, they were remarking that this thing that I had did in terms of getting into Yale Law School was even amongst those who wanted to be lawyers, like, rare. You know even amongst those who were successful lawyers was was rare, and so it's weird you know people who who um who have come home from prison think about my success as rare even if I hadn't gone to prison so that so the burden is not people thinking that I got some some like you know magic trick to to show them I think the burden frankly is um is what do you do with the knowledge that you have and and the knowledge that that I have. It's it's not just uh, whatever got me into Yale Law School, but it's also that I just got off the phone with a client who got sentenced to 72 years in prison when he was 17, and I'm representing him on parole, and I don't know if he's going to make parole, and I don't know if the job I did to prepare his parole packet, to prepare his family, to support his application for parole, to prepare him to talk to the parole board representatives – to prepare myself to talk to those parole people, like I don't know if that was good enough, and and it would be different if I didn't know where he was, but he's in the same prison that I served time at, and so that is sort of part of the burden is 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 just you know you um tethered I'm tethered to this experience and maybe deservedly so, but the point isn't whether or not I deserve it. The point is just if if we're talking about burdens, you know the point is just this a fact. You know that the the way that I'm tethered to that history. It's just a fact. And I do believe that I'm tethered to it in a way a lot of people who talk about it publicly aren't.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And I think too, the fact that you were incarcerated as a juvenile, uh, but, and forgive me if I'm getting the detail wrong, but tried as an adult, like you, you yeah. spent nearly nine years in prison for something you did when you were 16 years old. And you also served some time in solitary. And from yeah. from what I read, it was for relatively minor infractions. Like you touch a guard's arm, you know, I'm assuming it was yeah. not, it was not, uh, any kind of violent act. The
1: it's interesting. Cause you wouldn't go to the hole for these things right now. It wasn't a violent act at all. You know, and it was, it was prison was different. I was talking to one of my friends and he was saying that a lot of young guys going up in prison now don't understand what prison was in Virginia in the, in the nineties, you know, prison has radically changed and it's not, it's still violent, but it's not as violent. And, you know, it's, it's just different. Um, but yeah, it's a, it was it was um, you know back then, and still now in a lot of states, if you commit certain crimes, you could be tried as an adult. And back then, if you, and just what that means is that instead of going to juvenile delinquency court, where the maximum sentence I would have faced might have been five years, and it would have been more programming, um, and 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 the institutions would have been a bit safer. You know, it was like, you know, I, I mean, somebody. I, somebody above me, you know, sleeping in a cell above me, got beat to death uh, when I was in prison and, you know, juvenile detention centers, people don't get beat to death. And, you know, people got stabbed and, you know, a whole lot of violence happened in the prison, which is just like a consequence of doing time in prison. And that's not the case for like for juvenile facilities really. And so, um, so yeah, you know, I was, I went to court, I'm appearing in front of a judge. I went to adult court, circuit court, I pled guilty and, you know, spend a lot of time in the hole. Oh, and uh, maybe not a lot of time because I know somebody, um, Ian Manuel, just got out. You know, he served, I think he probably served 20 years, maybe something like that. But he served like 16, 17 years in a hole. So that's a lot of time in a hole. And he got locked up as a 14 year old. So he served a lot of time in a hole. Um, me, you know, I served 14, 15, 16 months, you know. So I don't act like, and those are six month stretches. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to really cry wolf about what the experience did to me, because I know others who, you know, who served very long periods of time in the hole, because they were in different states and it might have just been more difficult for them to get out of the hole. And then I know some others who served long periods of time in the hole because they were sort of political prisoners. And I know others who spent a long time in the hole because they were afraid to be in general population. So I, again, I don't want to act like my experience was the worst, because there's a lot of people who had it far worse than me. But I did, you know i mean but the whole is the whole and experience this experience in it it kind of the kind of thing that could follow you you
0: know I, I feel i uh like i read somewhere in recent recent years that solitary confinement has been defined as uh, like a form of torture has it not like military torture to put to isolate somebody or is that just maybe it's a psychological uh assessment it's,
1: it's been it's been you know it's, it's some scholars who've written about it um but it's, it's been, um, Craig Haney has done a lot of work, uh, uh, you know, uh, like a psychologist, done a lot of work around the uh, effect of solitary confinement. And that's why even here in Connecticut, they just passed a, um, a lowest. Wow, man, I got invited to do this joint with, uh, I got invited to be at this press conference. And they asked me if I would come and speak out about the work. And I was like, you know, it sounds good. I, I, I would do it. And, and what happens is, um, Karan Butler was asked to do it too. And then here in Connecticut, they passed a, a bill that um, restricted the, the use of solitary confinement. And, you know, Karan Butler is an NBA player, former NBA player, NBA coach. And he got up there and he was talking about his experience of solitary confinement and how it had followed him. And and it just struck me that, you know, it didn't have to be 17 years. It could it could be 12 days and it could follow you for the rest of your life. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's real. I think it, it is um, torture. And and depending on how you situated, it could be even. It could be the worst of tortures.
0: How did you make it? How did you get through it? Were you read? I mean, were you allowed to read? Uh yeah,
1: I did a lot of reading. Uh, you know, so it was interesting because, of course, like, I did a lot of reading, but 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 really, to the degree that you can read, is a lot of times um. Contingent upon like, like the first prison I was in you know, books were contraband. So if you're in a hole, you, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't get books. Um, and then I was in other prisons where, you know, your first 15 days in a hole, you couldn't get books. And then after that, they would bring books around from the library. So I, you know, I did a lot of reading. I bought books. I've started a project. I mean, it's, it's great. You know, if you want to hit talk, hear about it, talk about it it's called Freedom Reads, actually. It started formerly known as the Million Book Project. But what I did was I got a grant from the Mellon Foundation. And, uh, and the grant was for $5 million. And the idea was that I'm building these freedom libraries. And the freedom libraries of roughly um five hundred books. And and usually like in a prison, you have a a, a library. A lot of prisons don't have libraries because they cut the budgets for libraries and so oh, if they didn't cut the budget for libraries, they cut the budgets for librarians. And so if you don't have a librarian, then you don't have a library. You know, and they might have a the, the union, the libraries, librarians might be union employees, and so then the the state law dictates that you can't operate a library without a librarian. Which makes a lot of sense, unless you get rid of, like in the Connecticut, you get rid of librarians in a the prison, then all of a sudden it's really you're struggling, right? But even beyond that, um, because of the way prisons run, they constantly, re- you know, they have to control movement. And so you can only have 20 people or so in a certain space. And if you have 800 to 1,000 people in a prison in one library, you can imagine how difficult it is to get people cycling throughout the library, throughout the day. And you can imagine that a lot of people... When it comes to the library, they got competing interests. Do I go to work or do I go to the library? Do I go to school or do I go to the library? Do I go to the visit or do I go to the library? But most importantly, you know, if you looked in most people's houses, the like literate folks who love books, they got books hanging around. They got bookshelves and things like that. So I wanted to build libraries in the housing units. And so we put the Freedom Libraries in the housing unit. And I'm working with Mass Design, some um, brilliant designers, who built Bryan Stevenson's museum uh, out, out in um, – Montgomery, Alabama, but they built a lot of like really um, exceptional spaces, exceptional structures um, in the country. And I got them to think think about the scale of of furniture, really, and think about the scale of like, how do you create the stacks for a prison? And so we're creating these um, modular um, bookshelves and seating arrangements so that you could put these 500 to 2,000 book collections right in a housing unit so people can have access to a library as soon as they walk out of their prison cell. But like more importantly, so they can have access to something in their life that's beautiful. You know, some, some wild shit. I, I don't know if I could curse on your podcast. Oh, you know? yeah, please. But, but, you know, some wild shit. It's like I did nine years in prison and asked me how many flowers I saw.
0: How many you did know, you see?
1: <laughs> zero. Like, I mean, it, you know, it, it almost like we talk about torture, but it's almost like um, it should be something alarming about the way in which we deny people the occasion of you beauty. When they're incarcerated. And it's not just the people that's in prison. It's also the guards, because you go in there and you, you're you doing a life sentence eight to twelve to sixteen hours at a time where they tell you you can't have your cell phone in prison either. You know, so you can't contact your loved ones during your shift and you in there and it's hard and it's nothing but right lines and straight angles and it's no natural wood. It's no beauty. So we're trying to bring beauty to these spaces. And again, not to make it seem like we should have all of the prisons that we have. But to make an argument that while we have it, we should we should make people have access to more joy, to more books, to more literature, um, because when I was inside, books saved me and they weren't always easily accessible. Frequently, I had to buy books. And if I wasn't able to buy books, I wouldn't have been able to to read the books that that like helped me become a writer, help me become a thinker, help me um, become a lawyer. So what we want to do is like put that in front of people in a really robust way. And we've given away so far like 20,000 books as a adjacent part of Freedom Reads, you know. Um, but we've been talking closely to DOCs to actually build the Freedom Library. But because of COVID, we've been like seeding these book circles. So sending, you know, we sent like three thousand copies of my book in the prisons all across the country. But also, you know, hundreds and hundreds of copies of um other folks' books as well. Um, uh, from Jasmine Ward to Kiese Le Mans, to Miriam Taves, um, Jimmy Baca. You know, we've sent in a bunch of books and the ideas that Literature matters and it matters in like really profound ways. So, um, yeah, books changed me, saved me, altered me, and actually gave me a profession, um, when I was a
0: prisoner. So before we, uh, carry on, I want to ask about Freedom Reads. Is there a, a specific kind of book uh, that you're looking for? And can people like me donate books? Cause I get sent books all the time. I have more books than I can handle. I just gave a, a few boxes of books to a bookmobile yesterday. So, so the,
1: yeah. So the struggle. So, so prisons are are really security is the is the number one concern in prisons, and they want to be able to control the distribution channel for anything that enters a prison. And so, because of that, we only send brand new books in, and we have a distributor, Ingram, the the biggest distributor in the world. Really, they distribute all our books, so all our books come from Ingram. And they go straight to the prison, and that way we're able to operate um, within the normal distribution channels that they already um you know they already accept, but also we are we're able to build these relationships with the prison so that we don't have to worry about some of the security hurdles that other people have to like grapple with and so as a result and then uh, and and then so as a result what we say is um and then because of that, they do allow us independently to send books but that's because we made a commitment to them that we only send books that we get directly from the publisher. So for instance, you know, I got a box right here. It's a, it's a box of books. And I got another unopened box of books right here from, um, from, from Simon and Schuster, um, heavy. And, you know, we'll take the books and a lot of times I don't even open the box up. I just take the books. I put a new shipping label on it. And I send it directly to the prison. If, If I showed you my truck right now, you would see like 20 boxes of books in this, um, you know, what What are we sending out now? It's Rian Amaka Scott's book. It's um, Jasmine Ward's books. It's Miriam Taves' books. Um, it's Natalie Diaz, who just won a Pulitzer Prize. We got a bunch of her books. And so, like, we, we got the books, and we could box them up and package them and ship them to prisons across the country, but partly because the prisons had a commitment from us that we only send brand-new books that have only been touched by us and the publisher or the distributor. Um, and then, so because of that, Uh, We also make it a case that we send people um, new books as gifts, and and we want them to know what it feels to visit a bookstore and get a surprise, even though they can't visit a bookstore. And so because of that, we take donations and we welcome donations from anybody. Um, And if you go to the website, you can see a lot about the work that we've been doing. It's kind of cool when you look at the map because you can see all of the states that we've sent books to so far. And this is before – we haven't installed the Freedom Libraries yet because – um, doing a freedom library is like deep collaboration with the Department of Corrections, and so we work with Angola right now. We work with so we work with Louisiana and Massachusetts, and I mean talk about literally like, okay, so we're gonna rip up a bunk to put this this library in the housing unit. And they're like, yeah, we're going to rip up a bunk to put the library in a housing unit. And they're like, all right, well, how much space do you need? And we're like, this is how much space we need. And it's like these intense conversations about what kind of material could be used, what kind of like fasteners can be used, what kind of joinery could be used, what's the height restrictions, how it's going to look. And we got it's, – it's like beautiful – But it's complex. You know, you talk about doing this one time and then doing it 50 times over for every state Um, in September. I'm going to be touring some some I'm going to be visiting some prisons um, in Angola and performing my solo show at the rodeo that they got at Angola. And so it's actually like really fascinating what it means to to have to collaborate closely with people in DOC and they have to take things like security concerns seriously. You know, the Prison Rape Elimination Act is what governs like how high structures could be. So it's all really kind of it gets um it doesn't get it gets complicated, but it doesn't get it gets logistically complicated, and then it and then it demands a fair amount of creativity on our part. It was like how do you design a space to hold two hundred books or two thousand books in a beautiful way that fits in essentially a parking lot space, and then it's just like awesome in, in a lot of ways. But um, I would say if you go to freedomreads dot um, any of your listeners could to find so much more. Um. Then I just say it about the project, and they could donate to the project. And, and again, you know, donations are always greatly appreciated. Um. Largely because although we're housed at, at, at Yale, you know, we like uh, you know, we create the funding for the project ourselves. And so if it's books that go in, it's because of the people giving us
0: money. Got it. And just to touch upon something you just said, unless I misheard you, you said that there are height requirements in prison related to uh, the attempts to eliminate prison rape.
1: I, yeah, because, like, you could imagine – I mean, because you got to keep the sight lines clean. And so you could imagine if we wanted to, we could probably put bookshelves straight up against the wall. But we're creating structures that build community. And so you can access the books from both sides. And then the height requirement keeps means that you have to keep it at, like, 40 inches, about 40 inches. And so it's, but that's enough for three shelves. And so you can have three shelves it's 40 inches. And then you could imagine what it is, is you create this space where people could walk towards and conversate over top of the books um and then and then they could browse the books and then they could sort of sit down and read the books and so that the sort of height restriction is roughly you know standard three three shelves on a bookshelf anywhere and uh and it's interesting because a lot of prison is governed by by these same height restrictions and you you find a way to make do um but 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 what we are sort of arguing with our whole structure and our whole makeup is that we're building something that's beautiful that asks you to come to it and engage with it, you know, and, and, and allows you to get our level with the books while also not creating any kind of problems for the institution. But yeah, when they passed the prison rape elimination act and the, you know, early arts um, it just had a whole lot of requirements that for the first time really demanded the institutions
0: to think about um, various ways to keep, People safe in prison so I want to talk to you about your you know your time in prison your survival of the time that you served and um, you talked about how books saved you I think when I think most of us have imagined what it would be like to be incarcerated uh, at, at some point or another you know it's the kind of thing you see it in a movie or you wonder how you would fare you know like how would I respond to being in solitary how would I Deal with losing my freedom, and I can't help but think about, uh, like the spiritual nature of it. Like it's a lot of intense human suffering uh, to have to endure. It's a lot of alone time with oneself. I know you're with other people, but I just mean like that 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 confinement. You know, both physical and metaphorical, or uh, physical and figurative. Was it just books? I mean, was it was it finding kind of a map for your own inner terrain in these books that other uh, people, these authors, were providing for you? Were there other aspects to your ability to endure um, that helped you along the way or that might have emerged through the process uh-huh. in, in ways that um, you weren't necessarily expecting?
1: Okay. I mean, you know. As I gotta say, two things. I mean, I got locked up when I was young, like young, you know, 16. And I was locked up with some dudes that hadn't gone through puberty yet. And I'm certain I hadn't finished going through puberty. And, you know, they say um, youth is wasted on the young. Uh, when in some ways, you know, not knowing anything about the world made it easier for me to adjust and survive. I couldn't imagine. I mean, I got two children. I couldn't imagine going to prison with two children. You know, I couldn't imagine carrying around that weight of, of, like, literally not being able to be in my child's life because I'm locked up. Um, You know, I hadn't been in a committed relationship. I hadn't paid rent. I hadn't, I hadn't lived as an adult. And so it's all of these things that I think would have provided real stresses on me if I had to endure incarceration, understanding truly what it meant to be— uh, An independent kind of human being in the world. Like I think it might have been even more challenging, you know. But because I was so young, um, I just had youth and I didn't have wisdom, and it helped me not be fully aware of everything, you know. I, I just wasn't even stressed out. I was stressed out about safety and all of those different things, but I wasn't. Like I didn't even go to prom, <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, and so even you know, to the time I came home, I mean, my fantasies were circumscribed by time. You know, like, what do you fantasize about if you're 22 and you've been in prison since you're 16? You never driven a car legally. You know, you know, you didn't get a driver's license. You didn't go to prom. You didn't have a serious girlfriend. You didn't go to college. And so, in some ways, it's not that the time was hard, but it's just it's just that I was a, a blank slate that just had to fight with not allowing the stuff that was happening in prison. To fill my slate up. And and so I was able to create a psychic space in which like I would do things like I'm gonna be a writer I would just say it. You know, didn't have to know what it meant, but just say I'm gonna be a writer. And it was a certain kind of freedom in being able to assert that about myself and move that way. It was a certain kind of freedom in like <laughs> kicking with this guy and he asked me, like, Yo, if you go to McDonald's and you know, you slip and fall on one of those wet floor signs, um Shaheed, can you sue the people? And I'm like so, wait, did I see the sign? It's like, yeah, you saw it, you know, but you slipped and you fell. Yeah, I could sue him. And then arguing with this dude for like an hour about this. And then he <laughs> brings out a book that says torch on it, right? And like, look, man, you're wrong. Now, actually, listeners, what's wrong with this story? Like, why would I be upset at all of this? And sometimes it takes a second to realize, right? But this cat. Argue with me for an hour about a question he already knew the answer to. You know, it's like who does that, right? And so, in my response to that, is like I'm flipping through his magazine. It's like Prison Legal News, and I'm like, I'm gonna take this paralegal course. You know, this is the last time somebody gonna ask me something about the law and I don't know the answer to. And it was a certain kind of freedom and and, and really being able to make. um impulsive decisions like that but 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 the decision was driven not even by really wanting to know the law and and also not even really wanting to not be in a situation where somebody could play me like that but being in a situation where i could see an opportunity and finding ways to fill the time and so you know yeah it was a lot of alone time but it was also yeah alone time is important how do you like think deeply and concentrate and focus on one thing and i think prison force me to figure that out because otherwise you, you know, you spend so much time alone with your thoughts that if you don't figure it out, it's hard, you know, and the living
0: becomes um, more difficult than it might be. So you, you touched on this earlier when you were talking about the lack of beauty in prison. Uh, I I tie it in my mind to this notion of trying juveniles as adults putting kids who haven't even gone through puberty into a prison population with, uh, you know, adults, uh, you know, hardened criminals who've been in jail for a long time. And suddenly you've got like a 15 year old kid, uh, you know, down the way. Uh, So much of it is punitive and so little of it has any compassion in it or any desire to uh, care for rehabilitate prepare for life on the outside like at least th- this is how i understand it uh, yeah that's
1: true but but it's but but the one thing that's rough though is like you know
0: i was a 16 year old in prison but i was also
1: a 22 year old in prison and by the time i'm 22 i've been locked up for six years you know and uh and and i'm sure people get more hardened and more frustrated and, and even maybe more dangerous you know and i got friends who was 16 years old when when they went in and they 40 now and they're the ones who mentoring the young guys, and so it, it's, it's never like a clean narrative in that way. Yes, I, I think that you should never send somebody to prison who, you know, is still going through puberty. And I think that we could think about this as a society and be more creative about how we deal with violence and how we deal with crime and how we deal with this serious pain that like crime inflicts on folks, right? But um, but saying that we're gonna send a child to prison is sort of like the easiest and absurdest of answers. Given everything that prison is and given the fact that, you know, if you say that prisons are dangerous places and you say that they are dangerous for 80 percent of the people who are there. Well, if they're only dangerous for 20 percent of the people, the people who loudmouths, the people who gamble, the people who who collect debts that they can't pay, same people that living is dangerous for, you know, you gamble, you collect debts that you can't pay you got an iPhone and you can't pay the bill, you know, it's consequences to all of those. And in the, and the world here, they might, you know, like repossess your car. They cut your phone off it's different consequences in prison. When you run up debts that you can't pay, well, who's my, most likely to get into those kind of situations. And so I think we can see that it's young people who likely won't have the wherewithal to navigate really, really, really like choppy waters. Right. And I think that we could say that without acting like, um, it is like the environment and condition of prison and men in prison who create the danger yeah they are a subsection of men in prison who create the danger but i think it's always really important to like think about that world of prison and recognize that it's just like society but it's just like a a a a, a hyper scrutinized under the microscope really um sparse version of society in which you can find the best and the worst and these tightly held quarters that are meant to to like create the best and the worst of everybody that's there and more so the worst than the best because to create the best of anybody that's there, it has to come mostly from them, you know, because it's not the kind of resources that like aid people into becoming their better self. So when I think about like not sending juveniles to prison, I try to be careful and not, not, not throw the adult men and women who are in prison under the bus And try to say that the reason why it's absurd is because, like, I got a 13-year-old kid and I can't imagine a world that would demand that he go to prison with adults. Yeah. You know, because nobody's going to be charged to care for him in prison. And I will go to jail right now if I don't care for him in the street. And yet we send children to prison, right? 16-year-old, 16, you know, your parent could go to jail for for not caring for you the way that they're supposed to, right? They could go to jail but you would send a 16-year-old kid to prison in a place where nobody is charged to care for them. I know 14-year-old kids that have been in prison. And it's like, wait, so what – who is charged with this person's care, with this person's development from 14 to adulthood? Nobody. <laughs> who, who made that? So is that a societal, like a responsible decision that society is making? And so I think, I think you know, there's different ways to think about it without um, – necessarily impugning the, um, the integrity. Although, you know, and in some degrees all our integrity should be impugned thinking about the violence that we committed and the pain that we caused people. But I like to think a lot of people go to prison and try very, very hard to be better than what led them to prison. Sometimes it's just, is that your,
0: is that your experience? I mean, you saw, you saw that firsthand.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I think I can name more people that, um, I can name more regular cats, you know, the dude that you grab a beer with, you know what I mean? He 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 might not, you know, he might. And, and I think I, have dude that coaches some kids on a basketball team, you know, um, the uh, you know you meet more regular cats than than anybody who lives at the margins, right? You might not meet a lot of people who are going to start their own business, right? But you meet a lot of people who just they put their head down, they go to work, live decent lives, you know, and some of them fail, you know what I mean? It's like when you you know your neighbor down the street yells at his children. And, and might have hit his wife a few times and it's horrendous and, and you like and you see that he's struggling never to do that again and he's haunted by you know all of that exists in prison i'm trying to say like the spectrum of humanity exists in those cells and so um and and sometimes the the, the bit that people are willing to show you because of what prison is it's the most pristine bits of themselves you know because they want to hold on to it and so i know guys so my homie was like uh that's so funny. I mean, it's not funny at all, I, but I'm reading Primo, Primo Levy, um, you know, memoir on the Holocaust. He was talking about this one cat who, you know, Holocaust was so rough that like it wasn't no point in like taking showers, you know, and you had to take showers with your clothes on anyway. So, you know, if you wanted to take a shower and it was really just murky water, you had to be willing to endure being wet because you had to keep your clothes on because somebody was still it, even if it's a tattered shirt, you know. And, and and you wash your face and shave. And it's like, why when you when you like 30 pounds lighter than you should be? But he talks about one guy who would always do that, though. and He was like, because when they were looking for a leader, he wanted to be ready to be the most presentable looking hellish creature that could exist in a camp, you know. And it's some people in prison like that who, you know, one of my homies, he was like, yeah, when I was just working in a housing unit cleaning. I would get dressed as if I was going out of the unit to work in front of in the warden's office. And, and you have people who do different iterations of that where, you know, everybody is trying to find a way to to be somebody in the world. And and the best of folks try to find a way to be somebody in the world without hurting others. And some folks, they they look for ways to be somebody by taking out all of their anger and their pain and their frustration on others, you know, and it's and it's not I mean, it's just like the world. There's no way to really stereotype it. You know, it's complicated.
0: Yeah, it's it's so complicated. And I struggle, like, thinking about it, trying to imagine better ways to deal with um, people who commit crimes, people who um, are struggling once they emerge from incarceration to reintegrate. Like, I feel like as a society, we could do so much better. I don't have the answer but it doesn't seem like enough of enough thought is put into what what is our point? Is it simply to punish people who have commit crimes and to and to just uh, like I guess get some sort of like, revenge? That doesn't seem like uh, the right approach to me. You know, at least not in. I mean, I think there does have to be some kind of punitive component, I suppose. But it just feels to me like there there must be a saner and more humane way, especially when you're dealing with, um, younger people. But as you just said, you know, the people in general, uh, there has to be a saner way. Yeah. To... You
1: know, I like this. I mean, I like to think it's a saner way. And I think, you know, it starts with just like, uh, but the thing is like, how do you put pressure on society to solve problems? So you're thinking of car theft, you know, car theft is a thing people go to jail for. They typically go when they stole more than one car. So now you're like, well, look, dude, you just stole two or three cars and they don't go to jail. They don't go like for a long time. You know, you might get like six months, eight months. I mean, before you go away for like two or three years for car theft, you've stole, got caught stealing quite a few cars or got caught committing crimes within that category of crime. And what happens is, I mean, and you just take a crime like that. That's not it's a property crime. You know, actually, interestingly enough, think that. um, I asked myself, how can we put pressure on government to better solve problems without prison? And one way is to say, you know, we're not going to lock you up for stealing a car. But the problem with that is everybody who owns a car is like, wait, nah, hold fast. You can't like put open season on my vehicle. You know, if you say, well, this dude stole my bucket, and the car wasn't worth but $600, but it had 120,000 miles on it, and it was an Altima, and it was going to ride for another 80,000 miles, and now I can't afford to buy a new car. And so when an insurance company tells me we're going to give you $1,000, you're like, nah, I want – I drive 12,000 miles a year. This car was going to last me another seven years. I want seven years worth of car and that is not a thousand dollars, you know. And like one thing that will happen is like, so what do what do we say as society to that person? We say, I can't get you seven years worth of car, but I could put him in jail for six months. And and I think there's a way in which, you know, a state, a city, a locale, a prosecutor's office could say we won't lock people up for car theft and then force us as the people, government and everybody included, to put more pressure to create a system that accounts for that harm that occurred, because a lot of times, you know, if you just take talk about property crime, you know, you think I, I was talking to a prosecutor once I hired prosecutors here in Connecticut, which is absurd. Right. It's like, how the, why do you hire prosecutors? But um, but Connecticut is the only state in the country where um, the governor appoints a commission to hire the prosecutors. And so I'm on that commission. And it's me and like five other people. And we hire all of the prosecutors in Connecticut. And I've been on it for a couple of years. So just hand take it, interviewing prosecutors, talking about their work, making decisions. And it's everybody from the line prosecutors to like the special prosecutors to the to the state's attorneys, which here in Connecticut is the equivalent to a DA in most other cities and states in the country, right? Well, cities. But um, I remember interviewing one prosecutor and, and she was, and, and you know, people always ask about trial experience. Well, a lot of times you're not going to get a trial. You somebody commits a violent crime, unless it's something that they're going to get life for, like it's a murder. They're not going to trial for it because I robbed somebody and you're going to find me guilty. So I'm just going to plead guilty and try to get the best deal I can. But if, if I, if, if somebody's accused of killing somebody, whether they did it or not, they're like, I'm going to trial because, you know, it's the same thing. You know, if I plead guilty, I'm getting life. If I get found guilty, I'm getting life. So I might as well roll the dice, right? But like a DUI is one of those other cases that people go to trial for just because there's such a a huge punishment that feels disproportionate that people be like, I'm just going to roll the dice on a DUI, you know, more so than these other cases. And so this woman was describing a DUI trial that she worked. And I was like, hmm. And she was really proud of herself, you know, talking about the evidence, talking about questioning witnesses, talking about getting the guilty verdict. I said, how much time did this person do? She's like, well, she got sentenced to like 12 months or 24 months. I was like, you don't know. And she's like, there's a, a lot of cases. It was a couple of years ago. I've dealt with a lot of cases. I mean, I deal with a caseload of 200 people. I don't care how many cases you deal with. You just bragged about sending her to prison. You should know how long you sent her to prison for. How long did she do in jail? Let me ask you a different question. Did she have one of those uh, breath locks on her car where she couldn't drive because she had to breathe into it? No. But that was her second DUI. You know, it's like, so what It was her second DUI? Did she have any children? What job was she working? Who was she responsible for? So you sent her to jail, even if it was only for nine months, and she might have children, and she might have people she was responsible for, and you got a piece of technology that should preclude her from being able to drive a car, and you never used that. And you are talking to me as if I should be proud of you? It's so like, get out of here. You know, I ain't say get out, here, but get out of here. I was like, I was like, you know, this is not a job you're going to get. You know what I mean? Like, and, and like, but what happens though, is that, you know, we empower people and then we, and, and, and we empowered her, but we set her up in a system that for her to prove her value, she had to succeed at a trial that then demanded somebody go to prison. Which like, if I was the defense attorney on the other side of her, I'd have been like, wait a minute, my client, my client has a drinking problem, but she also has a family. You know, she also like doesn't want to drink. I mean, you know, it's a it's a, si- a sickness. This is not like she's like, let's dive into the swimming pool because it's hot outside. It's like she, she just can't control it. And how about one of those car locks? You know, and I had clients. I mean, I my my supervisor attorney once had a case where, you know, the woman had a car lock and she broke it. I'm like, All right. so now it's like, OK, well, who goes to jail? Does she go to jail? Well, at least you could say, look, we tried. We tried. Oh, you, you had a car lock. You broke it last time. It wasn't your car. I mean, like, you know, but we could force ourselves as a society to think more seriously about how to address these issues. And even if we cabin off violent crimes for a minute and just say, like, and I'm not saying cabin off violent crimes because we shouldn't deal with those and they shouldn't be free and they shouldn't be like an issue. I'm just saying the fact that we can't even do this for nonviolent crimes says something really profound about our inability to try to put pressure on the community and on the government To find better solutions other than prison This is really easy to just say um, You know, ticket Like what it says, like uh, like you drink a drive You go to jail, like all of the signs that's come up And it's like What if the signs say you drink and drive And you ruin this community You know, you drink and drive And you kill your neighbor's child I don't know, you know Like, like you know, as a matter of science What scare t- tactic Tactic would work better but it's like, what if the sign said if you tweet while you drive, you may kill your neighbor's child i I would like to think that I would respond i hope I would respond better than that than like you know if you tweet while you drive you're gonna get a ticket you know and and that's you know the the, the sort of punitive frame is is always what we use, and it doesn't seem to be working even on the lowest level of offenses when you think that you should be able to scare people away from you know the 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 um behavior that violates our social norms
0: so earlier in the conversation you briefly mentioned the name shaheed um that was your prison name like that was a name you took on while you were incarcerated
1: yeah cause, you know i mean everybody was naming themselves and this is what it is I'm like lord of the flies because the way the prison worked is you had like a couple of different receiving centers in virginia and like greensville was for older cats you know people that was like 19, 20, 21, and Southampton was for all the dudes that was young, and so we at Southampton, 15, 16, 17, you know, few 18 year old dudes is old, you know, and guys is becoming um, Muslim and, and and joining the Nation of Islam, and everybody's taking on new names, and, and people becoming devout Christians when they have never been devout before, and part of it. It's like you want to be safe in prison, and so you want to be a part of something. But part of it, too, I think, and the, the bigger part of it was that it was a way to be somebody else. You know, like, you know, you Jojo, who shot Mookie Cousin. Or you, you know, you you Samuel, who, who killed some innocent bystander at a party. Or you Charles, who, you know, attempted to kill somebody. You got three robberies. You some white kid from Virginia who um, shot somebody in a kneecap for nothing, right? I mean, now you're trying to be somebody else. And so a lot of folks, you know, they became righteous. Literally, their names, like righteous. Like, how you, you have to be somebody else if people keep calling you righteous. You know what I mean? It's like, yo, righteous, come here And it's, it's, it's straighten your, your chest out a little bit, right? And – um. And I was looking through the book, and, and and at the time I didn't realize it, but it was a lot like like looking for a name for my child, you know, like what will I name this boy, you know, what will I call him so that he becomes um, something in the world that like I don't know, manifests who he wants to be. And uh, and I'm looking through it, and I see Shahid, and it means the witness, you know. And I'm trying to be like Prince. I'm like picking me one name. I'm not, I don't have a first and a last name. You know, it's just like I got one name. You know, it's like Shahid is like the witness. Because I'm like thinking to myself, what, why the hell am I here? Like, honestly, like, honestly, like I'm an honor roll student. I had a gun one time in my life. I ain't never touched a bullet, never fired a gun, took $10 from this dude. Certain I scared him to death. Certain. But still. Like, is this is this the, the cost of this shit here? You know. It's like, they don't let you out of the cell. You know what I mean? It's like, ain't no AC in the summertime. I ain't never been away from home. Like, is this the cost, right? And I don't even know what prison is going to be like. But this is bad enough. So I was like, listen, you know, maybe I'm going to be a witness. You know, maybe I'm just supposed to see it and and tell the tale. Now, I already told myself I was going to be a writer. You know, a prison is a great ground to try to imagine something and try to make it true. And it's also like the ground where the earth will open up, like while you're walking on it and swallow you whole. But it's something to be said for, at least for me, in, in terms of I was better able to invent a future for myself in prison than I was when I was free. But I think that says something really damning about um, damning about the society that we live in and, and, and about the public school system that I was a part of and the teachers who educated me, who, um, you know, says a, a lot, of, and maybe it says a lot about myself that it took prison for me to had a kind of absurd audacity though. You know what I mean? I was like, I was at, I was at Harvard law school just writing, you know, uh, cause it was quiet there and me and my homie was writing there and somebody walked up to him and, and, and said, uh, Uzo, Uzo. And he, here and he's like oh what's going on what you doing yeah, i thought you was getting an mfa oh yeah i was but um uh, i finished i got it from iowa now i was the best one of the best mfa programs in the country you know what the fuck you mean you're not finished school she's like yeah i thought i wasn't finished school and i'm just listening to this because i'm like she's like yeah i figured i wasn't you know i wasn't finished school and i wanted to figure out what i wanted to do next i was even get a phd in english or go to law school and i'm listening and i'm like people make decisions like this she's like, so I decided to go to law school when I got into Harvard. And I was like, oh, shit. I'm like 32, wrote a couple books, couldn't get a job. And I'm hearing her talk, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go to law school. Fuck it. I'm going to go to Harvard, too. (laughs) (laughs) And like, like, this is like absurd. And, And it's crazy that it was like prison that gave me the sense of believing that something absurd like that could be true. And, and 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 I you know I took the paralegal course in prison so it's not like I wrote a habeas corpus for myself I got somebody else out of prison while I was in prison it's not like 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 advocacy and legal work was foreign to me but I never thought about being a lawyer and had I like not gone to prison and heard that same conversation I would have been finding reasons why I wasn't like the two people I was listening to but because I've been in prison and decided I was going to be a writer and had become a writer I'm listening to that I'm like you know what I'm gonna go to Harvard Law School. I didn't go to Harvard, though. I got in, but I turned him down.
0: (laughs) And you went to Yale.
1: And I went to Yale, yeah.
0: Well, you talk about the people taking on new names, like taking on a new identity, or at least trying to map a new identity for themselves. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, And there's a power in that, you know, when suddenly you start calling yourself something different, uh, like righteous, you know. And I I think, too, uh, you know, you talked about... Picking Shahid because it meant that you know, because it it means witness, and you kind of had this sense of yourself in terms of trying to find a meaning in your circumstances that you were going to be there to witness and perhaps um, render it in art at a later date, literary art at a later date. I'm curious to know a little bit more about your literary education. Uh, You know, you talked about reading books and and you mentioned some authors and poets who were influential. Did it get more detailed than that? I want to say I read somewhere that you were actually writing the poems of others by hand, like longhand, to learn how to do it. Is that correct?
1: Not to learn how to to do it, although osmosis, you know, but I was writing it because I had these books that I had to return. And so I wrote them longhand so that I could always like see the poems and return to the poems and read the poems. I wasn't even thinking about how I was helping become a writer as much. And then I would just imitate that poems to learn how to write. And then later on, I took a, a, a correspondence course on how to write long-form fiction, and that was really useful to me, um, long-form nonfiction fiction. And that was really useful. And then I got the poet's market and I would like submit poems and ask for advice from editors. And sometimes editors would give me advice. But, but the truth is, you know, I started 16 and I'm just meandering my way to becoming a writer. You know, I just spent a lot of time writing bad poems and writing bad poems and writing bad poems. And then, you know, you come out on the other side and you got some skills that you didn't know you were developing.
0: And did you have family support while you were incarcerated? Like what was your family doing while you were uh, in jail?
1: Yeah. I mean, my mom um, my mom would come see me all of the time and, um, well, not all of the time, but she would come see me a lot. And then, um, my, my, my aunts and folks would write me. I had family support me. Prison is hard. So it's hard to think like, what what do you mean by family support? But I always knew folks loved me. They sent me money. They accepted my phone calls and that's the best that you could ask for. Sometimes I was in prisons that didn't allow you to drive. You know, it was like 25 hours away from where my folks live.
0: So it wasn't going to happen. But, um, but
1: I had real support though.
0: Um I want to talk to you about the redaction poems uh, like i 've seen different names for this. I guess redaction makes the most sense since you 're you 're using court documents i 've also heard blackout poetry used in the past, but basically you take a piece of of found prose and you you black out uh, certain words and you, you know the ones that you leave behind like render a new meaning and I want to compliment you. On your creative choice to use court documents, Uh, you know, when you are creating these poems, I think it's like, it's a brilliant choice. Like, I'd like, this is exactly what Black Hop, this is what uh, redacted, you know, poetry is meant for. And I think, too, of like over the past few years, how many court documents I've looked at, like during the Trump presidency, they would circulate on social media and they were often redacted, you know, so I had like a lot of familiarity. Well, that's
1: where it came from. Yeah, yeah.
0: But yeah. it's just like it's a it's a it's exactly what uh it, it's it's exa- it just makes such great sense. It's such a great like kind of creative master stroke. So I'd just like to hear you talk a little bit more about how you arrived at that. Uh and then also um there's the the work of um I believe it's Titus Kafar who did the cover yeah. art. Uh, but there's a visual art component to this theme of redaction. Uh, That I also really love. So just talk a little bit more about that so that uh, listeners can get a sense.
1: Yeah. So in terms of writing the poems, I mean, it didn't come from I wrote them before, you know, Trump got elected to office. But it came from the way in which thinking about how redaction is used to tell us what kind of knowledge and information is not accessible to us. And frequently the, the idea of redaction obfuscates the object at hand. And so, what I wanted to do with the poetry is create these redaction poems that made plain the arguments that were being made by writers and, and the ideas that were sort of being um, brought to bear, right? And legal documents themselves are like so already um, I'm like difficult to understand. And, I, and, and frequently they become harder to understand once you start redacting things. I wanted to redact it to make the document cleaner to make it more legible and turn it into poetry, especially because people think that, you know, the thing that, that, that law school kills is poetry. Uh, you know, you don't think about the uh, legal language being poetic. So I wanted to strip away the legalese. I wanted to strip away what made it harder to hear what was being said. So all you had was like the city kept a human in its jail, you know, like, what does that mean by itself? They said, um, you know, they, they said, worried family members could buy their freedom like what does that mean that's like and and i wasn't actually really trying to impress upon folks that sort of connection between slavery and prison as much as i was trying to say like This is the conditions that we create in this country around money bail, around locking up people because they're too poor to pay fines and fees. And how do you ask somebody what this means when the very legal documents that's trying to make it plain are so difficult to understand by a huge um, portion of the the population?
0: Yeah, the the money bail um, is another thing I wanted to ask you about this issue. And it's very much feels tied to race uh, to me. I think a lot of the, um, people who are incarcerated are black and brown people, um, black and brown men, especially. And like this issue of money bill, which I know is part of the work that you do now often is what gets people caught up in the system because they have fines and fees, parking tickets, whatever it is that they can't afford to pay. And then they wind up imprisoned. Whereas somebody who, you know, has the $1,500 or whatever it would, would come up, you know, come out to. Would be able to uh, be out and free uh, simply by virtue of being able to, or not free, but you know what I'm saying, like not not in. Yeah, but I mean, you got
1: you got a much better chance of staying free if you could pay bail, particularly for like the kind of charges that where bail is available for. You know, you're talking about. I mean, some folks locked up. I mean, uh, Browder, you know, Khalid Khalid Browder, you know, locked up. For, for, you know, three years because he can't pay bond, really. And then the charges get dropped and he gets free. But he went through serious hardship that led him to commit suicide while he was incarcerated. And had he been able to pay bond, he wouldn't have been locked up. And the charges got dropped. You know, like, huh? You know, it's like, it's like, you know, people say the punishment, the process is the punishment. Um, misdemeanor land Issa cola houseman wrote a book about the misdemeanors that lead people to churn in and out of the system in new york and and all of those people churning in and out of the system is primarily based on the fact that you got a system of bond and bail that allow people to stay locked up because they can't pay to be free and it's not as if those folks are going to jail it's not as if those folks are going to prison they just staying there for pretrial and then getting time served and I've I've had clients like that, so I think it, it is really important to think about. I um, mean, that's what I tried to bring to bear. And you talk about Titus. I mean, me and Titus have been, you know, friends. We both got sons. We both live in New Haven. Uh, we both started community college and then worked our way through school and ended up at Yale. We got some similar stories, but he's a visual artist, um, talented, like extremely talented in his own right, and, and and really established. And you know, we were always talking about working together, but it was hard because frequently when visual artists and, and writers work together. Uh, one medium becomes a substrate for the other medium. And and it was like perfect to do it this way because the um you know, the the poems had that visual component to it. You know, the poems had that visual element to it that would allow um, he ended up doing portraits, doing etchings, and it allowed the etchings to like communicate. But also it felt like the etchings were the people who were speaking. And then he did it in, in, in double so that you had to really look closely. Because what the, what the mugshot does is allow you not to see somebody shorthand for, I know everything about this person. And so by doing it in, 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 in double, you had to look closely to see even who you were looking at. And, and it does that thing where sometimes you look at somebody in prison and you see their whole family history. And it makes you ask different kinds of questions and, and the poems became complaints and, and actually the, the legal form is called a complaint. You know, I turned the complaints into a poem, but they become poetic complaints. Like, how can you treat me this way? Um, and so, and you know, in terms of collaborations, I mean, it was one of the coolest that I was a part of because one, it happened so fast and we worked so hard to get it done, but also, you know, it's it's, it's also nice to feel like you're doing something that's meaningful and that says something about what needs to be said in the moment that you live in.
0: Yeah, I mean just like just like a perfect fit, as you were saying. You know, sometimes there's these great synergies, but like I, I can't think of better cover art or better like a better better visual art representation for your work, your written work.
1: Yeah, no, it was great. And then yeah, it was perfect. I actually, you know, I was trying to find I didn't have a cover of my last book, and so, you know, finding this for the cover of this book was great because it's also like Felon tries to erase you. You know the whole idea tries to erase you, and the idea with using those redacted images, those those tarred images on the cover of the book was to say, if you really want to know who I am, you got to look more deeply than this mugshot. And 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 the idea is that the book becomes a beginning
0: of of what it means to look more deeply. Do you th- do you think now you know now that you've um, been out of prison for a number of years, you've gone on as you said to get your education, Yale Law working as an attorney, public defender, um, kind of working with uh, young people or people who were in a set of circumstances that you found yourself in a number of years ago. Do you have a sense of things getting better, worse? Do you have, new, like like what kinds of new perspectives does the work that you're doing now lend you on your former self or the the self that you were uh, back when you were 16, 17, 18 years old?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you go back to 16, I mean, things have to be getting better because, you know, people didn't even know what a word like mass incarceration meant. You know, um, people, I mean, Virginia brought back parole, you know, so I'm representing people who, when we were 16, 17, we were in prison together praying for parole to come back, you know, and so I'm representing folks now because parole has been back. So it's hard for me to act like things haven't advanced. I mean, it's still a deep, and, 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 it's a real struggle, but things have changed, you
0: know? And you say, uh, I I read somewhere, you said you want to sell a million copies of this book. That's your aspiration.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, books are funny. People don't buy books, but what I've done is I turned it into a solo show, you know, because like one of the things is you want to be able to engage with the audience where they are and, and really make them make them feel it and so i turned the whole book into a solo show not the whole book but a lot of pieces of the book um to keep bringing it to people and keep having people having a hit folks having have, having them read it and be like or having them hear me and be like oh i gotta read this book this is the stuff that's in that book because you know poets aren't i mean you know po- we live in a society that that poets aren't like they aren't the arbiters of truth you know Mainly because poets have a hard time. We don't have any talking points. I need to be—I need to be one of those people that have talking points, you know. You know, poets don't have talking points, and so it makes it harder for the poet to like resonate in society the way you imagine. But um, but yeah, I do. I mean, I want the book. A million copies isn't a lot. I mean, we put millions of people in jail. We lock millions of people up every year. I feel like a million copies isn't a lot. Um, and it's less about what it'll do for me, you know, personally. But it's about—I think what it says about. How we think and care about an issue and I think the book represents the issue well and so I'm gonna keep doing things you know um, The 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 theatrical performance the solo show is the next step, but um, And I'm gonna keep writing and I I, I think, you know If I still work through the books though, mine is the kind of book that I say if you don't like this I buy it back from you
0: Money back guarantee. Yeah, you know money back guarantee Are you working on anything new? Like I mean, are, are you? Just... Yeah, I
1: mean, like the the solo show "Freedom Reads," and um, working on some essays, and I'm working on a book called "Chasing Freedom," and it thinks about you know my life post-incarceration, but the fact that some people I care a lot about were locked up my whole post-incarceration life, and and what it meant to be them. So it's these you know dual narratives.
0: Well, I I really enjoyed it. And um, I'm glad I read it. I'm really grateful for the time and getting a chance to talk with you. It's a powerful testimony, and I'm um, going to be very curious to see uh, this essay collection when it comes out. And I just wish you all the best. I think it's really inspiring uh, what you're doing and just the the path that you've forged in life, um, particularly you know post incarceration to. To be where you are and to do, uh, to be doing what you're doing is uh, awesome.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. Hopefully, the next book come out, we have another conversation.
0: Okay, that is Reginald Dwayne Betts and his new poetry collection is entitled "Felon." It is available from WW Norton and Company. You can find him on the internet at Dwaynebetts.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at dwayne betts. He's also on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, the book is called Felon, out there now from Norton. Go get your copy right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode, the entire archive is made available to you free of charge. It is a listener-supported show. For as little as $1 a month, you can support this show. If you like the program, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it and you have the means, I hope you'll consider supporting the show. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you go up to scale, you can get stuff. You can get a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker. I'll write you a postcard. I'll wish you a happy birthday. Patreon.com slash pod. Support the podcast. Tip your server. Patreon.com slash pod. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story give me some feedback there is also another people app the other people with Brad Listy app it too is free it is available where apps are available go get the other people app other people is also now on YouTube that's a thing relatively recent if you're a YouTube person follow the show on YouTube subscribe to the other people podcast YouTube channel every single episode is up on YouTube did you know that All of it. Go get it. What else can I tell you? Oh, another great way to support the show is to rate it and review it over at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever the show lives. Rate it and review it. Helps people find the show algorithmically. So coming up next week, I believe it's going to be Matthew Spector, author of a great new memoir slash cultural history called always crashing in the same car so stay tuned lots of good stuff on the way from the other people podcast okay